Hey, right. <laughs> John, thank you All so right. much for coming on. Uh, listen, oh yeah, dude, no problem. Thank you. Listen, I've uh, I've known you for a while. I've watched Power Athlete kind of grow, and we're so excited to have you. You know, come on our podcast. And today's special because, um, you know, and I've said this to you before. Um, you are a unique blend right now in our field, where you are an athlete played at a high level. Um, you've also trained people and continue to train them. But this podcast that you've built, and I don't know what episode you're up to now, but north of 600 just, approaching seven. Yeah, it's yeah. The exactly. people that you've spoken to, you know, that's like a PhD um, of just you know conversations and things that you you've had throughout the years, and it's and it's fascinating. And I want to kind of get into that for our listeners today. But can you just tell everybody for you know anyone who doesn't know just kind of your backstory, quick as an athlete, and then kind of talk about what is Power Athlete and kind of how it's more than a podcast. Yeah, a um, little history on me. I grew up in Southern California, youngest of three boys. Uh, played a ton of sports growing up. Um, I think when I was probably about six years old, my older brother's six years older than me, so he was probably close to 11 or 12. He got beat up by some, like, you know, local bully. And uh, my dad wasn't much of a fighter. So, you know, straight up 80s karate kick style. I uh, took my brother down to this, like, local uh, Japanese dojo, and there was, like, a sensei, Habura, Japanese dude down there. And after about three weeks, uh, my brother being there, uh, my dad just basically took my other brother and I and dropped us off. And so we started doing a uh, Japanese martial art called Shotokan. And it was like super traditional wooden floors and katas and kicks and punches and the whole deal. And um, we uh, did that pretty religiously, went every single day because we could ride our bikes and uh, played baseball, played basketball, um, you know, every sport you can imagine. In the summer, we did junior lifeguards and swam and I surfed. And uh, when the waves were shitty, we skin dived and spearfished. So growing up in Southern California, obviously in a place called Palos Verdes. And uh, when I was about 10 years old, it was 1986, uh, my dad was a big boxing fan. And I remember seeing a fight. It was um, Marvis Marvin Hagler versus Tommy Hearns. And uh, I, it was like the most amazing fight. You can look it up. It was 1986. And uh, from that moment on, I thought kicking was stupid. And I wanted the box. And uh, the problem was the only place around us that had legitimate boxing was down in San Pedro at the Y. And that was pretty damn far. So there was a kickboxing academy that was actually within bike riding distance that I went to. And they had a ring. And they had boxing classes. And they had to mix it up with the kickboxing. And so I ended up getting into boxing doing that. And then I ended up, once I got to high school, ended up training with a guy who was a legitimate boxer. And so I worked with him uh, all through high school. And then when I went to Cal, uh, you know, I got like a, you know, I played football, obviously, once I went to high school and started lifting weights, and we can go off in that direction. But uh, I ended up getting something like 100 scholarship offers uh, to go play football. And I was pretty lucky around that time. Uh, when I was about 14 or 15, I played at a school called Palos Verdes, and there was an old power lifter in our neighborhood, a guy named George Zangus. And George invented the super suits and the wraps and had a country called or a company called Marathon Nutrition. And uh, George had a three-car garage, and he used to train some local kids at the high school, and he invited me to go over there and basically learn from, you know, the Thompson powerlifting coach. And, uh, you know, he was buddies with Bill Kassmeyer and all these guys. And uh, we trained in George's garage uh, three, four days a week. And, um, you know, there was an excellent, like, maturation process and kind of apprenticeship. And, like, you know, you show up and, you know, sometimes we wrecked weights for two or three hours before we got to lift weights because there was a bunch of old dudes there to lift weights. But, you know, nobody was an asshole about it. You just kind of shut your mouth in what they tell you. And then when they, when they got done, it's your turn, kid. And then we got to go lift weights. And I remember one of the first times uh, my dad dropped me off at nine in the morning. He came back at noon and he was like, I was like, dad, I haven't looked at weights yet. And he was like, okay, I'll be back, you know, in a couple of more hours. So like, you know, like I think now, like just the fact that like my dad left me at this old dude's house lifting weights for six hours is hilarious. 
But um, so we started lifting weights and I really liked lifting weights because I always wanted to be big and strong. And I knew that all these guys that were big and strong all lifted weights. I didn't necessarily know how they got big and strong, but I knew they were big and strong. So I wasn't sure if it was like through osmosis, just like being around the weights, you got big and strong. But I knew that those dudes did that. And for me, I wanted to be big and strong. So I was like six foot, like 165 pounds when I was a freshman. And uh, all like my brothers were all big. Everybody was big. And I was like, I'm going to be big. So that was kind of how I got into it. Uh, and uh, the the fight stuff was always very important to me. Um, and even at a young age, I thought, you know what, maybe I got a chance to be like a, you know, fucking great white hope. I got a chance to be a white heavyweight boxer. And I think I was like 14, maybe 15 years old. And I got, we were doing some sparring stuff with a kid who was older than me. He was maybe 18. And I remember, uh, he fucking hit me with his straight left. And, um, uh, you know, it wasn't even like a jab. He was like squared up to me and hit me with his left. And I remember he split my cheek on the, actually it would be on the right side. And uh, I remember thinking, like, this football thing's for me. And that's how I ended up going and playing football. And uh, I remember going out there, and it was great. It was like playing – it was like fighting and playing with a bunch of dudes that didn't know how to use their hands and fight. So I uh, played high school football, and by the time I was a sophomore or junior, I had a bunch of scholarship offers. I grew to 6'4". I got bigger and stronger. Uh, decided to go to UC Berkeley, um, not because – um cal was necessarily good but uh i just figured i would go to the best school i could so that i could get the best degree to hang on my wall um you know i'd like i didn't know anybody that played pro football and i was like how long do like white people like white dudes play i didn't really see that many like middle like middle class white kids from palace Verdes playing football so i figured like hey if they're gonna give me a scholarship like i'm gonna go to the best school i can and berkeley's a really good school um I remember like years ago when I was little, our next door neighbor was a guy named Lynn Wilson. He was an orthopedic surgeon and he had gone to Berkeley. And I remember my dad made a comment one time that, that Dr. Wilson was really smart and like smart people go to Berkeley. So I think I might've had that in my head. So I go to Berkeley, uh, graduated in four years of the rhetoric degree and then got my master's in education in my fifth year and had to student teach. And then thank God I got drafted to go play for the Philadelphia Eagles because that saved me from being a teacher. But uh, I had a, um, been taking, I took my LSATs and had applied for a, a scholarship to go to Bolt Hall, which for a four-year letterman, Bolt Hall is the law school at Berkeley. So I was planning on being a lawyer and ended up getting drafted fourth round, second pick in the fourth round of the Philadelphia Eagles, showed up and ended up starting as a rookie and, ended, and then ended up getting hurt unceremoniously and uh, came back that next year um, after getting, you know, season-ending injury. And uh, that's a whole different story. But, um, you know, like I show up, I'd been hurt the whole year. I was like the starting right tackle a year before. Now all of a sudden I'm like the seven string left tackle. And I just figured I was camp fodder and somehow through some injuries and some luck, I end up at like starting at right tackle. And, and by the end of the season or end of training camp, uh, I was the starting left guard and basically started there for the next five years. And then went to play for the Kansas city chiefs. And then my 10th year for the New England Patriots. Wow. So when you went through all that though, I know uh, there's some key things that I, I know that you, you've talked about that were influential to you in your development you know, you, you talk about the offensive line, you've talked about boxing, but I know one of the things that we've mentioned before in your podcast is talking about how to use your hands. And I think yeah. one of the things that we really talk about is that, yes, I can make you stronger. I can add different kind of um, general adaptations to strength, but if it doesn't transfer, it's useless. And so I'd love for you to dive into that a little bit about specifically yeah. who some of those influences were. And, you know, did you get a little bit better? Did you get a lot better? What was the gain potential? just because you put the right sequence together to transfer to the field. Yeah. The, um, so I sometimes think 
skills that you develop when you're not trying to develop skills end up becoming things that become like ultimately very, very important. Um, now let's give you an example, right? So we did, uh, like when my brothers and I started in martial arts, uh, my older brother ended up like learning enough to where he was able to like defend himself against the bully, which is another hilarious story, which will fast forward like 30 years about running back into that guy. Uh, but my older brother after like, uh, didn't really like it. My older brother was, uh, he's a nice dude, not a violent dude. Um, I really enjoyed like the violence aspect. I like the hitting, I like the taste of my own blood kind of a deal. And my other brother does too. So we ended up like my older brother kind of faded. Like we just went every day. And the reason we went was they had like this back room where you could shut the door and there was like a, like a bag and like, we do like heavy bag and speed bag and a bunch of shit back there. But the cool part is if you shut the door, it was completely black. So what we used to do is uh, before and after class, we would like invite people and be like, Hey, we're going to go in the back and train a little bit. You should meet us back there. And then what we do is when they come in, we'd shut the door, turn off the lights and then just fucking rage and like just try to knock people out and do stupid shit. Um, but one of the things that we did with great regularity, obviously was a speed bag. And then it got to the point where we would, uh, and like, just like kids probably, you know, of, of my generation and, you know, like probably your generation too, uh, we didn't necessarily fly anywhere. My parents were big on road trips. So we would get in our four-door sedan and we would like go to the Grand Canyon or Oregon. My mom's from Canada. We drive to Canada. Like we drove, all, like we saw America from the back seat of a car. Um, and it was amazing. But the problem was like, I can't read in the car because I get car sick. There was no video games. We didn't like really have anything. And like the, the, the music my dad liked to listen to was like classical and like big band music, which is awful. So we just sat back and listened to this God awful music. And so my brothers and I for hours would play uh, bloody knuckles or hot hands. That was our game. So we would sit on the back seat and we would just literally play like it started with hot hands and then went to the bloody knuckles. And we would play that game like to the point where like people's knuckles were bleeding. My mom was screaming at us, no more fucking bloody knuckles because it would turn into just punching each other in the back of the seat. But uh, I, I probably have like 10,000 hours of hot hands or bloody knuckles. So uh, that was like, pretty uh, like just an interesting byproduct of sitting in the backseat taking road trips. And then we did a lot of speed bag and then we started hitting like, you know, obviously in the boxing started doing more focus smiths and um, you know, just a, a lot of boxing stuff. And then as I went out uh, as a, a freshman in high school to go play offensive line, D line, I remember the coach was like, Hey, you know, very first time I got in a stance, he's like, I want you to like sit back when the guy comes at you, I want you to punch him. And uh, I sat back and I literally like two hand punched a dude in the face and knocked him off his feet. And the coach was like, I thought I was going to get in trouble. He's like, that was great. Can you do it again? And I was like, yeah. And what was so crazy to me is the defense alignment would run, run up to you with their hands at their side, which, you know, if you've ever been in a fight, that's like the single worst place you could ever put your hands. And uh, it just was really interesting to me how slow people's hands were. So all of a sudden through like, Everything I was doing, whether it be like our boxing training or just even out there doing like hand, hand drills, people's hands were dramatically slower than mine. And I also had the ability to like close my eyes and I could like put my hand, like my finger on your nose. So from boxing, I learned how to judge distance very well. Like that's something a young offensive lineman really struggle with. They don't understand how long their arms are. They don't understand first meaningful touch and they don't understand like how to gauge that. And uh, I always had a really good ability to be able to gauge distance and be able to like know how much distance I could cover. And more importantly, like how much distance I needed to recover. And uh, the hand speed thing was just really inherent and was just a natural skill that I developed and obviously did things to develop it more. But it was just when uh, when I went to college and even in the NFL, 
I remember I was at a bar with, uh, this is random. I was with, with Michael Strahan at a bar in New York and Strahan and I were having drinks and uh, Michael Strahan was a big watch guy. So I remember we were, we were talking about watches. I always remember that he had like a big, like super expensive Panerai, but he was, uh, he was laughing about um, when they, when we would go, obviously the Giants would come play the Eagles. I was playing for the Eagles. They would put my picture up uh, on the scouting report and they would circle it. And their thing was like, don't let this motherfucker get his hands on you. His hands are faster than anybody you'd ever seen. And he's going to, and not only are they fast, but he's going to literally punch you so hard that like, he's going to knock you off your feet. So they put a big circle and they like, they were like, this dude's an assassin. He's going to fucking hurt you with these hands. And these guys would like, like nod their hand and be like, man, I never in my life seen a dude with hands as fast. And they like have like jokes about it or like, you know, I wonder how his hands are so fast. Was he a pickpocket in this? And so Stray and I were talking, I was like, yo man, I boxed when I was younger and sitting on the backseat playing bloody knuckles as a kid uh, was always very important uh, just because that was what we did on road trips. So, um, but that was funny that like, here I am having a drink with Strahan in New York, you know, after some event and he's like, man, the scouting report. And he's like, they used to circle your picture, dude. This guy's an assassin. Don't let this dude get his hands on you. So that was always my MO, uh, big punch, fast hands. And I was always very athletic in that I could uh, play nose to nose on guys. Most offensive linemen, whenever you hear them talk about like, we want a guy with really long arms. It's because what they're nervous about is that the defensive linemen are extremely athletic, so they want an offensive line with long arms so that he has a lot of ability to recover. I said, fuck that. And I used to literally set a dude short and play nose-to-nose with him because I always felt that nobody could out-athlete me. And if you could, I could always basically drop step, cover distance, and my hands were so fast that it allowed my feet to make up for it. So um, I did some unconventional things to the point where I even remember in meetings uh, watching film with some of the young guys, my offensive line coach being like, don't do any of this to the young guys. Like Johnny has a skill set. If you try to do this, you're going to get beat and lose. He's the only dude that can do it. So I don't know if it was God-given ability, something I inherently had developed or whatever, or something that I crutched onto. But uh, the fast hands, the big punch, and the ability to bend my knees and move through space were just things that I inherently had through my entire life. Now, how did you go into strength and conditioning when you would kind of assume that you'd get into coaching? So, and and throughout that journey, I mean, you've talked about three or four different coaches I know you had some uh, individual coaches that you worked with in between kind of what, if you had to pick your style, like what, what tribe do you subscribe to what method, you know, worked for you and, and kind of how did that impact the program that you've developed a power athlete? Uh, one of the, the fundamentals and the cornerstones of the power athlete program in my training from the time I was 15 was from uh, George or So um, Dr. Uh, Fred Hatfield, Dr. Squats, compensatory acceleration. So uh, George Zangus, who was the old power lifter that trained me, he was uh, good friends. It's kind of, well, tumultuous friends, let's say, with uh, Dr. Squat. So it was interesting. After I got to interview and become friends with Fred Hatfield, Fred fucking told me how, how George had screwed him on money and a bunch of shit. Because they were like, George was, uh, you know, putting on these powerlifting promotions. Uh, Fred squatted, what, 1,042 or something in, in George's wraps. And George was supposed to pay him money. And, you know, just old guys bitching about shit. But uh, he talked extensively about compensatory acceleration uh, via Fred Hatfield. The idea is mechanical advantage increases, so does speed. So George talked about, you know, as mechanical advantage increases, so does speed. So what I need you to do when you lift weights is I want you to break these things. I want you to be so violent with the barbell that people are going to come over and tell you, well, you got to slow down. And you have to tell them, I have to break these things. I'm going to fucking have them remember who I am, who I am. So George was like, I, I don't want you to lift weights. And this is, a, I've told this analogy before. I don't want you to lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful. 
I want you to be fucking violent. I want you to move your hands fast. And I want you to try to break these motherfuckers at every chance you have. So when I would bench, I would bring the bar down. And as the bar was coming up, I was working on accelerating the bar. So I took that same carryover to when I was playing in that if I was going to punch a guy as mechanical advantage increases, so to speed. So I was working on accelerating my hands, not to the individual, but punching three to four inches through the individual, whether it's same thing with the barbell, didn't matter what it was with a deadlift, a RDL, a clean, whatever, as mechanical advantage increases, so to speed. So that little tip uh, at 14 years old actually kind of stuck in my mind. And I think that was a component for me, the idea of like, you know, strength is good, but power is better. And I was just kind of viewed power as my ability to display my strength dynamically. So, I mean, I, I ran into a lot of strong dudes and I ran into a lot of powerful dudes. I didn't always run into a lot of strong dudes that were really powerful. And what I was constantly looking for was like big, strong dude that can move very fast and generate a ton of force and power. And that was kind of the hallmark in my mind. So when I, I'd run into guys, like, oh, he's kind of a big, stiff dude, big, big, strong, stiff dude. And then I get into like, oh, this guy, you know, was extremely powerful. And there was something that was interesting and in that the guys that were strong were stiff, but the guys that were powerful had flexibility. So I constantly worked on, you know, not only pat or I was not big into passive range of motion, but active range of motion. Could I sit into different positions at different end ranges and be able to generate force was always very important for me, whether it be in the bottom of the squat or different positions. So I wanted to be able to generate. I always wanted to be nice and dynamic and explosive and strong, especially in those vulnerable positions. So if you ever see any pictures of me playing in the NFL, especially in my stance uh, on the start, you'll see me actually sitting with my hips below my knees. On, on my initial stance so like when i would be in my stance literally like the top of my knee and you'd see my hip below the hip crease below and i could generate force out of that position which allowed me to not only lift my head look around but also stay much lower than other people so it's technically a position that not a lot of people are strong in but i could actually generate force and drive out and be extremely strong in that bottom position yeah i think uh i think of cynthia um for the NFL network analyst put out a whole thing talking about the hip height. So being able to maintain velocity under two and a half feet. And so we've talked about that at length that, you know, bones don't get tired, you know, length doesn't get tired, but if you can get into a position that is taxing for me, but you know, it's effortless to you, every single snap you're, you're at an advantage and will it yeah. overcome, you know, great deficits? No, but if all things are equal, that's where that 1% or 2% really starts to add up. And so, you know, I think about some of the stuff that you say about the speed and the velocity, which is interesting because now with velocity based training, uh, you know, the pendulum has swung, you know, people are moving fast, but, you know, talking about some of the loads you moved, I think the big misconception is velocity based training doesn't always mean light. It's the heaviest yeah. thing that you can move, the work that you can produce, you know, and the velocities that you can move that weight. And I think that it's important for people, you know, to know that strength is the foundation um, that then you try to express it. But what would you say is like kind of the biggest thing you've noticed between athletes and then call them regular people trying to just train and, and ranging from weekend warrior to former athlete. What, what did you see? Cause I, I wonder uh, how much you can develop that or how much of that is genetic. Um, and yeah, I, I think that there's a really like, and this is something that I'm getting into with these jujitsu guys that are obviously in their early twenties. Uh, I wonder if there's like, um, I almost think about it like a circle of time. Like there's like, kind of like I view kind of time in these circles where like you have this, like, you know, maybe like uh, eight to 12, uh, you know, 13 to 16, 16 to 18 in these little potted times. And I wonder if there's like certain adaptations that happen within those circles that don't necessarily happen in others. Like, I don't know if 25, if you can have that same pod that you had at, four, you know, 13 or 14. 
but I'm, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to do it because I view these individuals as beginners. Um, but the one thing that was very important to me was to be extremely violent with the weights. And I was trying to move them from point A to point B as fast as possible. I mean, what we know on physiology, um, you know, that intent to be able to move a bar as fast as you can, you know, activates all those motor units uh, to, you know, a few things happen as we age, obviously we lose the ability to recruit, recruit motor units. Um, we also lose mitochondrial density. So, you know, building a big aerobic base is extremely beneficial for individuals. Uh, I think when I was younger, um, either used to like, you know, obviously, uh, I was pretty like, it was interesting. I, um, the first time I ever lifted weights, I wasn't very strong. I think I benched like 115 pounds for a single, you know, fucking maxing out when I'm 14, right? That's what they had us do. And I might've squatted like 205 pounds and it wasn't good. Um, and I was so embarrassed that I benched only 115 because all my friends were at least lifting 135 and I like couldn't train in their groups because my working sets were like 85 or 90 pounds. So I just maxed out every day till I got to 135, which took like two weeks. And uh, I think I benched like um, that was that first day was 115. I think I benched like 315 when I was a senior in high school. So I put like legit 200 pounds on my bench. Uh, I squatted 610 when I was 19. So in my second year of college. And then it took me to I was 22 to bench 500. So, I mean, when I was 14, I benched 115. When I was uh, 22, I mean, you know, obviously you can do the math on that eight years. It took me to bench 500. But I remember, I think I squatted at 200 when I was 14. And when I was 19, five years later, I squatted 610. So, um, you know, I also grew. I mean, I grew from six feet to like six four and put on, you know, 40 pounds that first year. So uh, the um, the adaptation was was very quick. Uh, I think that the, you know, I was a big, strong dude. And I think like moving dynamically and being able to be pretty fast and explosive was always kind of within like my ethos. Um, I remember when they closed my high school and I went to go play sophomore football at Peninsula where they consolidate all these high schools and the uh, um, head coach was a dick. Um, he like his idea of speed training was we'd go out and run 16 220s. So you'd run at 220, walk at 220. We do that 16 times. That was our speed day. And I like, even at like 15 years old, I knew because I went to the library and checked out a book on speed training. Nothing that we were doing. And this is like so fucking funny now. I laugh about it. But I legitimately went to the library and, you know, I had to get on like the Dewey Decimal System, microfiche, the whole deal and find and they had a book on speed. And I went through the book and there was not a single like reference in there to running 220s, like what we were doing. Like that was like conditioning, like uh, it was just, yeah. So um, the track coach was a PD guy where I went to high school, uh, which was a school before I got closed. And I went and talked to him and I was like, yo man, I want to run the 110 hurdles. And I had this feeling and it was from whatever, like dudes were fast in like the hundred and whatnot. But like the dudes that could run the hurdles had like incredible flexibility and like the coordination to be able to get over that. I even as a 15 year old was like, you need to be fast. Obviously, those other dudes are running. But like if I could run the hurdles, like that's like an incredible expression of athleticism that like I want. And uh, I talked to the strength or the the track coach and I was like, I want to run the 110 hurdles. And he was like, you're a football you know, I was like, well, he's like, here's what we'll do. You can come train with us and you can run the 110 hurdles and you can do all of this, but I need you to throw the shot in the disc for me because that'll help us on our meet days. And I was like, done. So I would go to practice. I would do all the warm up, running, all the, all the sprint prep, everything with the team. And then I would get to do like a little bit of hurdles. And then like halfway through practice, I would go throw the shot in the disc. And I wasn't very into throwing the shot in the disc. I mean, I was able to do it just enough to like help my team win some points and not look like a total schlub. 
But like I was literally went to every single track meet with one intent was to run the 110 hurdles. And like, I didn't get my name called, but a few times, but like, I was there, I had my spikes, I was warmed up. Like I was literally like waiting for them to be like, you know, and um, remember back to school with Rodney Dangerfield where they're like, Melon, we need you. I was waiting for my like literally Rodney Dangerfield, you know, running out of the, out of the bleachers. And I got to do it a bunch. And I, I, I can't say I was good. Um, I, I like ran against like three dudes one time and smoked them all, which was pretty neat. Um, but I, even at that age, I knew that uh, speed and athleticism to be able to move through space was important. And I didn't necessarily know how to verbalize it. But uh, I mean, did I remember that same book had something on downhill running? And I remember driving around my neighborhood looking for a like two to three percent grade so I could do overspeed. And it was like a Saturday, and I'm like out there like basically trying to find like oh, I don't know, I like I don't know how to measure grades. Like I just knew that like two to three wasn't a lot, so I found this really smooth kind of slow grade on grass. And I was out there literally just trying to run downhill. And I remember a bunch of my buddies were like drove by and like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm trying to get faster. And I read this book, and they must have thought I was insane, like 16 years old. But um. I didn't know that I was going to play college football. Uh, it wasn't necessarily on my radar until all of a sudden I started getting all these letters. I just knew that I didn't like to lose. And I knew that this stuff, whether it be in the weight room or the running in this, like translated into not losing uh, when it was important. And so in my mind, like I knew that like lifting weights and getting bigger and stronger and all this was creating like more armor, more strength, more, you know, whatever it was. Um, I knew the running and all this stuff was like, uh, beneficial for everything but at the end of the day like I just was training because I thought this is how I was going to get better and not lose so I didn't necessarily know what we were going to compete at but I knew I was going to be ready whatever it was and how much do you think that that influenced your development both as a football player but then coming to power athlete right like everybody well, knows podcast yeah. but you, you actually do training now you do seminars and how do you make sure you don't fall into the trap of this is what worked for me therefore you should do it you take a very kind of engineering approach on kind of multiple subsystem levels. How did you get to that point? And then starting this business after your career? Yeah. So uh, I, I really had no intention to be a coach. Uh, I, I actually had no intention to do any of this stuff. Um, I was, so the way it all went down was my last year in the NFL, I was living in Newport beach and I used to drive up to Carson to athletes performance. And anybody that knows where Newport beach is and knows where Carson is, it's not far in terms of the crow flies, but it could be like 20 minute drive. It could be like a three hour drive. And it just got to the point where I've been driving up there for years and I was just kind of smoked on the drive. And, uh, I, I like got on and like started Googling, looking for like a gym that had like Olympic Olympic plates. Cause I used to, you know, obviously I could do a lot of stuff at, at like a commercial gym, but I couldn't Olympic lift. Cause at the time nobody had any bumpers or platforms or, and, you know, now, now it's way different. So all of a sudden pops up that there's a little gym, like literally two blocks from me that has bumper plates and it was a CrossFit gym. So I'd never heard of CrossFit. Uh, and I just like went up to this gym. I just thought like, okay, they're like, I don't know, like CrossFit, cross-dressing. I don't know what the fuck it is. Like they're kind of fit. I don't know. So I walk in and it's like a bunch of like little shirtless dudes in their fucking Olympic lifting poorly. And I go talk to the owner. And uh, he's like trying to talk to me about Olympic lifting, which is hilarious because um, you know, when I was in college. I think I snatched 130 and clean and jerked 172 and a half. Um, you know, I power cleaned 180 and clean and jerked 172 and a half, which is hilarious. 
And, uh, you know, this guy's like, you know, these guys got like fucking 60 kilos, kilos on and they're struggling. So I asked the dude, I was like, Hey man, can I come like, I'll just pay whatever your monthly is like 115 bucks a month. And he's like, you can come anytime. I was like, I just need to come use your bumpers. So I started going up there a couple days a week. Um, I would, you know, obviously we would always, I like, um, I've used PAP training for my entire life. Like I do something heavy, I do something dynamic. So if I was going to clean heavy, I was going to jump. Uh, whether it be, you know, broad jump, this, plyometrics, there was always some preparatory phase for it. So uh, I was going up to athletes' performance, was training with them, doing a lot of our sports-specific stuff. And then I was, a couple of days a week, I was training with these dudes. And uh, about two or three months into it, the guy, the owner, who's he's a with fucking total shitbag, um, hits me up and goes, Hey man, like, uh, these CrossFit people that own it are really excited about you training here. And, uh, would you be interested in doing this thing called the CrossFit games? And I was like, no, like, I don't know what that is. And so I, at the time didn't have a contract and about like two or three, maybe three or four weeks before, uh, training camp was to begin, obviously we go to training camp third week of July. So this is probably like mid, mid, like mid June before 4th of July, uh, like I, I still had been rapping with some teams and kind of what I thought was I wasn't going to go to training camp. I was just going to wait until like the first or second game of the year and then go in kind of like a fucking assassin on somebody's team. And, um, uh, so they ended up talking me into it. You want to go do this CrossFit games thing? I was like, fuck it, let's go do it. And they ended up sending a film crew out and videoing my training in anticipation of it, mind you, I'd never done any CrossFit. And then I went up and I did this CrossFit Games thing. Uh, there was like 200 people. I think I finished like 70 or 80 out of it. Uh, and then I came home and then five days later went to training camp for, uh, went out to Baltimore Ravens. And then we got into a little conflict and then on contract. And I came back and ended up signing with the Patriots. And uh, that was basically how I got kind of like, and I'm giving give, give a long story. So um, obviously I go play for the Patriots. I ended up getting hurt in that last preseason game. I came home, Kevin Stone worked on my knee. It was still swollen and while I was rehabbing. Uh, CrossFit called me on the phone and asked me if I would come work for them, uh, teaching my brand of strength conditioning to the CrossFit market. And this was fascinating because I didn't really have a brand of strength conditioning. I didn't really know. I mean, I know what I had done and I know what like I had done for my own training and I'd been around some really intelligent people like, um, you know, uh, uh, like when I was a rookie in the NFL and I got hurt, Mauro De Pasquale did all my diet stuff. So Mauro and I were always good friends. So I was a big anabolic diet guy. He plugged me in with Charlie Francis and I had a really great conversation with Charlie Francis on EMS and training. And if you want to like think about like my training system, it was like something heavy, something dynamic. There was PAP stuff I used. Uh, I, I liked a lot of like... Um, you know, the West side accessory stuff. Cause Louis Simmons had, when I was in college, spoke to Louis and Louis helped me bench 500 pounds. My roommate had the bench videos, you know, at the end, there was like a number. It was like, call us. I legitimately called the number Doris, Louis's wife answers the phone. Lou, Lou comes, I talked to Louis. Hey, I'm playing offensive line at Cal. I want to bench 500. Here's what you do. So he laid me out a program and I benched at 500. And uh, so I, I'd always been like, I knew West side. I knew what Zangus had done. I knew what I'd done with Todd Rice in terms of our Olympic stuff. So I had this like interesting, like PAP, you know, dynamic, uh, plyos, Olympic lifting strength. I had like a lot of really interesting kind of like ingredients into this kind of recipe, I guess you could say. And I'd had a lot of success with it. Uh, so when CrossFit asked me about working with them, I, I told them, I was like, yo man, I know what I did. I don't know if what I did will help your people because it's so specific to me. 
And uh, they were like, well, we just want you to talk about training and more importantly, like what you did. And that was really fascinating for me. So as I sat down, I was like, um, shit, I like didn't know much about training beginners and just had to learn. So I reached out to people like Mark Ripto and uh, other individuals and was like, you know, how do you train beginners? And, and really dug into the physiology of like an adapted nervous system. Um, you know, like uh, Louis made a really interesting point to me one time too, that really helped. He uh, made a, cause uh, we were asking about Prilipin's uh, chart and he was talking about like, uh, what was it? It was like, you know, one to 10 reps for being optimal. At, at like a really high rep range or sorry, high intensity. And I was like, well, what dictates four, what dictates seven, nine or 10? And his, he made an interesting point. He goes, you know, we've tested it and the guys that take the most gas need less reps, right? The more testosterone, the more engines in the system, the more in concert the nervous system is and the more efficient it is so it can move better. And he goes, you know, the guys that are on, you know, Grandma test a week, those individuals need four reps. You're natural, you're probably going to need 10 because you're not working with as much. It's going to take you more to get where you are. And that was really fascinating uh, observation. And about that time, uh, I had started my own gym and not because I wanted to own a gym, but I wanted my own place to train. And we ended up kind of like it was in my, it was in the bottom part of my house. And then I went to training camp for the Patriots. I came home. Uh, the guy that was supposed to be running, like training some people in my house, all of a sudden had like a hundred clients. I got evicted by our neighbors. So I went up the street, rented the place. And next thing you know, we had a couple hundred clients. So I ended up like, kind of like just accidentally getting into the gym business, not because I wanted to, but because like this guy ended up fucking blowing up the bottom downstairs in my house. And my neighbors ended up like signing a petition. We had to move. Um, so I ended up with this gym. And like people are coming in training and then CrossFit asked me about this. And just like we had a lab, I had some theories. I talked to a lot of people and I just started like having different people do different things. Like you're going to do this, you're going to do this. And I started potting, get different. I started basically arranging people based on a few things, age, um, training, history, background, and what they wanted to do. And then I started putting these little pods together and then I started sampling different training methods on them. And it was like, all of a sudden these people were getting better and these people weren't. And we just started kind of working these little groups. And then when they approached me about doing, going out and teaching, they suggested this name CrossFit football and uh, they wanted me to have a website. And so I just basically took what we were doing in these different groups, put it on a website and we launched it and we got like 17,000 hits the first day. And then uh, about 30 days later, they said to me, hey, you got to travel and teach a seminar on this. And I had never taught a seminar. So I reached out to some really sharp people again that I know and said, hey, I got to teach this seminar. Like, what does a seminar look like? Like, how do we do it? And uh, we just basically worked back. And I started, we literally went out and started teaching these seminars. And really what it was about was just teaching people plyometrics, teaching them how to lift weights safely. And like teaching throws and jumps and how to vertical pull. And it was basically just like, hey, here's um, here's all the basic movements that you need to train athletes. And here's a basic sprint template on how to do it. Here's some overspeed and here's some like how to coach technique using banded resistant runs and plyos and jumps and just basically put a strength conditioning seminar based off of like, this is what I would expect athletes to do. And this is what I think these people should know how to teach. And it was a two-day event and we started teaching those and what was really wild is all of a sudden I started getting like hundreds of questions a day on email. So I started sitting down and responding to every single person. And my buddy's like, you can't do that. Just like respond to the person, but cut and paste it and put it on a blog. So I started like, how do you start a blog? So I started a blog called Talk to Me Johnny, which is uh, basically based off of my favorite movie, which is uh, Rambo First Blood. 
uh, remember, you know, Coven Leaden talked to me, Raven, or uh, Coven Leaven Raven talked to me, Johnny. So it was basically a spoof on on uh, on my favorite movie, and uh, that blew up. And I proceeded to teach like hundreds of seminars around the globe uh, for this cross of football deal. But we had been giving programming away and like thousands of people were following the program. And then they were coming to the seminar and giving me all their results. So I've been following this program for like three to six months. And now all of a sudden I'm twice as strong as I used to be. I use this program with our high school football team. I've done this. I'm like, it was crazy. I mean, we basically gave away a free program and then, people would book seminars and we went and met all the people doing the program. And it was from like the Arctic circle to New Zealand and back. And we did this over a number of years and taught hundreds of seminars. It's the Hawking newsletter. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. And I want to take this moment now to talk about some of the other resources here at Hawking dynamics that I think you might be interested in. The first one being our metric database. If you haven't checked it out, it was a database that we put online at the end of 2022, and it serves as a one-stop shop resource for all things metrics. Whether you're a professor, practitioner, or someone just getting started, it's a tremendous resource that you can find a description for every metric and really help you decide where you want to put these different metrics in your paradigm to help improve your training. The next thing is our newsletter. Our newsletter is a bi-weekly newsletter that goes out and covers everything going on within our company, the latest updates on hardware, software, industry trends, you name it. If you missed the podcast from the previous week, no problem. There's typically a synopsis or summary. If we're doing a giveaway or a competition, you can see that listed there with information on how to join. And at that time too, I want to take a shout out uh, to Alexa Garcia from Barry University and her group for winning the force plates. We hope you put them to good use in 2023 and way far beyond. And then the other part too, is we like to talk about history where we understand the role that we play within the industry right now as being the leaders in movement assessment and technology. And we take that very seriously. And we wanna pay homage to those who came before us. And I think our last post talking about the Stark Center and really kind of understanding the value that that center has played in both not only being a part of history, but chronicling everything from the beginning days of Sandow, Sanduina, Louis Sear, and all the way up until modern times. I mean, if you ever wanted to know where functional training came from, it didn't start in the 2000s. You can go there and find out. You want to know where the kettlebell started? It wasn't with the Russians, but these are just the kind of the things that we feel to be important. And as we go forward and create history and we stand on the shoulders of giants that came before us, we, we really want people to understand just the importance of how it is we got to where we're at today. And we feel honored to kind of take that role and move our industry forward. So again, if you haven't signed up for our newsletter, check it out. And if you haven't been to our database, you're missing out. So take a look at those two and we'll jump back into the conversation. Wow. That's an amazing journey. And, and I know that, you know, during that time, you know, the lineup that you've brought on to the show is just wild. And I say that just because um, you and I've had conversations that people fall into different camps. And almost to a fault, even if something's right, I won't listen to it. And and it's unique because you don't really see the cardio community doing that. The biking community doesn't really do that. It's something specific about the strength training community where it gets really clicky really quick. But I've, I've seen some of the lineups. I mean, you, you brought on, you know, oh, my goodness, some of the top nutritionists. You mentioned Mar. I think you had Rob Wolf on. Um, mm -hmm. you know, you had that incredible seminar with Louis before he passed away um, and hundreds in between. How did those influence your programming and just kind of your style? Because I think about some of the biggest impacts that I've had are the offhanded conversations, uh, yeah. restaurant, uh, at breakfast, uh, getting a cup of coffee, sitting in the lobby, Boyd's on one side, Dr. Kramer's on the other. 
and they start talking about stuff from the seventies that both of them, you know, had forgotten until that moment, but you're present. And so you've been present to a lot of really incredible people throughout time, both as a athlete, but then also now as an owner in this program, how has it affected you? And then if you had to pick two or three kind of life-changing aha moments, what would they be? Yeah, no, uh, I, so what's wild on the podcast thing is, uh, uh Callie, uh, Hinsman, who was one of my coaches, she's a cop now in Seattle. Um, she was like super into podcasts and this is like 10 years ago, like 2013. And so she'd been talking about talking about these podcasts and she's like, we got to start a podcast. We got to start a podcast. So, uh, I really thought it was kind of stupid. I was like, so we're just going to sit around and talk and record it and people are going to listen. And she's like, yes. And I'm like, God, oh, it sounds so dumb. And so, uh, I was on teaching a seminar and all of a sudden on like Twitter, I got this like, you know, blast that it was like, you know, uh, um, power athlete radio episode number one. And I was like, the fuck? Cause this is my trademark. So I'm like going through, send a cease and desist to these assholes who have started power athlete radio, not realizing that Luke and Callie and them who worked for me just like did a podcast and didn't tell me about it. And so like, it was with like a guy named, um, uh, Dr. Steve, uh, I'm totally blanking on his last name. So it was uh, Denny K and Steve uh, Playtech. And so these like Luke and them, and they got, got some guys together who were following our program and they basically just put on a podcast. And then I send these guys cease and desist, which is so awful. Uh, and then we get back and they're like, no, 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 it's us. And I'm like, okay, so we started a podcast. So originally I didn't want to be a regular uh, contributor. I just wanted to be a special guest. I was like, you guys run the podcast. I'll come on periodically as like a guest if you don't have anybody. So um, they would just like come on and we would talk and they would interview me and it was just kind of like organically living. And uh, that's how it started. And, and then what happened was uh, after about two or three episodes, when they realized that like none of these dudes had like a Rolodex of friends like me, they were like, Hey, uh, who would you want to have on the podcast that you would be on? And I was started just going through. And I remember it was like, I reached out to tomorrow. And at the time, Morrow had kind of fallen off the internet. His wife had gotten sick. And so he wasn't really doing much. And so I called him on the phone and I was like, Morrow, I need you to jump on this podcast. So he did it. And I don't know if he's ever done it. He might've, maybe, maybe he's never done another one because I still get people once a month, every couple of months reaching out, trying to get a hold of him through listening to that podcast or my interactions. So we reached out to him and just various people that I had been involved with. And uh, that's just kind of how it started. And um I reached out to Fred Hatfield uh, about compensatory acceleration because we had done a huge training block. Uh, so I was putting pre-programming out across the football, um, but I had like a theory on training. And the problem is, is that I couldn't get the people that were following cross the football to consistently give me their numbers because I had this theory on training that I wanted to test. And so what I did is I was like, you know what, like, I know this sounds counterproductive, but what if we put up a paywall behind like power athlete and we actually charged people 20 bucks to follow the program. So then they would have to buy in and then they would feel obligated to give me their results. And they were like, no, 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 that'll never work. And I was like, fuck it. Let's just put up. So we found some free paywall. I put up a program. I told people, I'm like, hey, we're going to put up a paid program. It's 20 bucks a month. Uh, you, you pay the money, but here's the deal. I'm going to load it like in like a WordPress thing, but I need you to leave your results in the comments. And if you don't, like, I'll fucking boot you. So all of a sudden, like, um, people started like joined it. They 
paid 20 bucks and they were leaving their results. So we were, what we were trying to test was uh, the EMS devices. So Compax had come to me and I'd had a, a ton of experience with the EMS devices through Charlie Francis. So when I ruptured my patellar tendon, I couldn't get my quad to fire. Mara puts me in touch with Charlie Francis. I get on the phone with Charlie on a speaker phone. He's in there smoking cigarettes and he gives me this whole program on how to use EMS devices to get the muscle to fire and how to recruit motor units and when to use it and how to do it. And uh, so I like when complex who was uh, EMS devices, electromuscle stimulation, they reached out to me like, Hey, um, somebody said that we should reach out and talk to you about this. Do you know anything about this device? And I was like, yeah, I fucking know a lot about these devices. Like this is, and they, they had different frequencies and different Hertz. And they had like a bunch of like really interesting, like uh, tech associated with it, but they had no fucking concept of like what it did, how it worked. And that the guy that designed it had been like sold the company like seven times prior. So there was nobody in that company that had any understanding of how to use it. More importantly, what the frequencies meant or what the tech really did. And I was like, these different frequencies correspond to different motor units. And there's different fatigue points, there's different activation points. And like, here's an entire like rubric on like how to like use performance for EMS devices that like I, I got from Charlie Francis. And like the, like the dude was like, holy shit, like this is crazy. Like, could you test this for us? And I was like, yeah, send me a bunch of devices. So they sent us a bunch of devices and I gave a bunch of devices. People bought them. We just basically pushed them out. And I was like, well, I want to test uh, the EMS devices in a training program that I have a theory on and I want to get the results. So people pay 20 bucks. They joined this field strong program. They got the EMS devices. Some of them got them for free. Some people pay like $800 for them, which is another crazy one. They started following the training program. And then I wrote protocols for the EMS devices, how they should use it. If you were 25 to 35, you would use them in a post-workout environment. If you were 36 to like uh, and older, you would use them in a pre-workout environment. So the idea was that older athletes needed the EMS devices to almost create like potentiation to like pre get like the motor units to fire. And then that way their motor units were more available to them when they, when they trained the younger guys would train, but we don't know how many motor units they used. So we just used it as kind of a cleanup to get max motor unit recruitment in the post-workout environment. And all of a sudden vertical jumps fucking went through the roof. Dudes lifts went up 20%. The old dudes were literally getting better than like they had had in 30 years. And like I had all of this amazing fucking data and we went into this like testing block and I had everybody record like video testing and I got all of these numbers and I was like looking at all these numbers. I put them into a spreadsheet and I could not find the common thread. Like I couldn't figure out like there was like this guy would like everything was all over the map. Like there was no common thread. Like, like this guy's fucking squat went up 30%. This guy's went up five. This guy's press went like, it was literally like there. I, like I couldn't draw a single usable um, conclusion from it. So I, uh, I reached out to Fred Hatfield and uh, I said, Hey Fred, like, this is what I did. You're like the smartest dude I know. Here's my history with Zangus. So we jump on a call. We have this like amazing three hour call. And uh, he was like, you know, the problem is you're looking at the numbers. You need to look at the athletes. So I went back. And they had sent me videos of all their one RMs and about a lot of their training in you know, like a Google drive. And so I started watching all the videos. And as I got done with all the videos, it was amazing. The people that had made the best progress were moving more dynamically than the people that weren't. The other people that didn't were all moving slower. So like I all of a sudden like realized, like we had talked about compensatory acceleration, but I realized that like, 
people didn't understand it. They didn't understand how to be dynamic. And I hadn't put them into a situation that was forcing them to be, to move fast. And so I, I realized um, kind of a, a, like an interesting moment that like the people that like had effectively like increased speed and done things to be more dynamic got better. And the people that like just got, uh, the people that didn't, that got worse, just got slower. So it was kind of like this interesting piece. And I was like, all right, shit. Like, okay. So how do I, okay. If, if, uh, if speed and like power are the intended outcomes and everybody that got faster and more dynamic and we had everything, we had like, like three RM squat tests. We had like single squat. Like we had, I, I tried to have all these checks and balances and, um, it just came down to like this, like basic function of like speed. And I realized that like, man, we, um, we needed to do more plyos. We needed to sprint more. We needed to like force people to be more athletic versions of themselves. And the people that we did ended up getting much better than the people that didn't. Uh, but then about that time I got invited to a CrossFit, like kind of like HQ kind of fucking hubbub bullshit. And it was down in San Diego. And um, I went down and I remember I got up early and went to go look for a copy. We're down the gas lamp and I ran into Nicholas Romanoff, who was there. He was working with CrossFit at the time. And so Dr. Romanoff, I offered to buy him a copy and we went and had breakfast. And you were talking about like life changing moments. And so uh, at breakfast, I was like explaining this exact same thing to Dr. Romanoff. And he was like, let me tell you a little story. He goes in. um uh, you know, he's a Russian sports scientist, University of Moscow, Eastern Bloc. He's like, during the Cold War, uh, the Polar Bureau became obsessed with this idea of like programming and training and we could make athletes. So they asked every strength coach that was training anybody of any worth who had like won a gold medal, world record, whatever, to submit their training program into like this like think tank. And then they were going to pour all these programs into this think tank and take all these like master sports scientists. We're all going to like sit around and stare at it. And they were going to literally like come out the other end with like the perfect program to train people. So after three years of submitting all this, nothing is heard, nothing is heard. And so finally, like, you know, the main dude is like, we are presenting this and they set this meeting and like they all come and they're all excited because they're going to hear the perfect program. And all of a sudden the guy gets up there and he goes, <laughs> uh, after three years and, um, you know, thousands of programs and uh, interviewing, you know, tens of thousands of athletes, we were only to come up with a few conclusions the fastest athletes in the world ran the fastest in training and the strongest athletes lifted the heaviest weights. And then they like grab the guy off and shoot him or something. Right. And so uh, as we're sitting there, like, I'm like, yeah, if I can fastest guys ran the fastest and the strongest guys lifted the heaviest weights, like it makes total sense. Right. So like we end up finishing breakfast, I pay whatever we go back. And as I'm driving home, I'm like, you know, like brain bombs. And I'm like, Fuck, the strongest athletes lifted the heaviest weights and the fastest dudes ran the fastest in training. So it like there is no perfect program. Like there is nothing. Like these moments were like so uh like important in my maturation process and development of like, you know, because I, I think everybody goes through this. You think it's movements, you think it's programming, you think it's this and this and this, and it's all bullshit. And then you get to the other side and here's this guy, like whatever I have to do to get my athlete to run the fastest so that he can run the fastest in training so that he can run the fastest on, on game day, whatever I can do to get my athlete to lift the heaviest weight and be the most dynamic and move the best, that's the recipe and that's the program. And so I think where power athlete is very different is then I took like a 180 and I developed this universal athletic model and, what, and this blueprint of athleticism where now it became, all right, here's my model. 
This is what I'm asking my athlete to do. What can he do? What can he do? What are the pieces I need to fix so that I can make him move within you know, the confines of my, of my model and allow him to be the best version of himself so that he can be the strongest, most explosive version of himself. And it's the program is going to be different for everybody. But if you put him through the model to begin with, we'll feel, we'll see where the weak points are, where the loose lug nuts or the, you know, force bleed, whatever you want to call it, we'll find the touch points that we have to fix. What we'll do is we'll fix them. We'll put them back in the model, see if they can do it. And then we'll just keep doing this test and retest. We'll keep tweaking and moving. And the only limitation is my ability to stop working with them or my lack of creativity or understanding of physiology. Yeah. We talk a lot about blocks. So the idea of this fixed constraint, this research, but how many times have you worked with an athlete that for four weeks, everything went perfectly according to plan. The rehab was great. Recovery was great. Every you know percentage was on point. It's not how it happens. You have good days. You have bad days. You have this biological flux. And when I mean, we even see on the plates of that, we know there are things that are trainable, you know, that data driven. And then there's a whole section of things that's just God given. And yeah. I know your line about you know the land of the gifted and the giants for the NFL. To even start the conversation, you have this foundation. And I think even if you go back to the old texts of you know the 1880s and you know the early 1900s. There's very clearly a strata of how the population breaks out. And it's not just the jump. It's that they jumped, they're six foot five, they're three, there's yeah. multiple things in the composite that are standard to deviations out. And all that combined, because obviously the next thing is, can we do genetic testing? Well, yeah, sure. But if they want to be a painter or a poet, it's irrelevant. And so showing yeah. up to the workout, putting in the effort with the combination of those things all aid in the chance of being better, but you're not dealing in a a machine shop you know it's not an assembly line it's much closer to modern medicine and even in some of delorme's work back in 51 coming out of the army at mass general they're working on okay how do we bring the skier back you know and what reps mm -hmm. work for them and then how come 10 reps had a different effect than five reps and then if i did yeah. five reps over an hour versus five reps in five minutes why was that and so you really saw this kind of post-1960 push of trying to understand well we're observing all these things, but why the, why I think it's important. I really admire how you guys, you'll listen to anybody, but that critical conversation is right now, what is the best thing for them today and here? And, I, and I'd love it. We could just kind of go kind of riff back and forth here. I bring an athlete to you. They're a high school football player. What are some of the first things that you think about that come to mind um, as a senior coach? Um, one of the bigger issues I run into, and uh, I think, at least, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of pull myself in this. Uh, I was always real fascinated by like injury mechanisms. So I like obsessively interested in injury mechanisms. Like for example, uh, I noticed, and this was actually proven years later, we had, uh, I think it was, um, God, it was Andy Galpin, or we had a uh, uh, dude on the podcast that had been doing a bunch of testing and concussions as it related to ACL tears. So I noticed long ago that if a guy took a big hit to the head, he tend there was ACL tears tended to follow after. And I remember watching a receiver take a big fucking shot to the left of his head. And like three weeks later was running and just tore an ACL on his right knee. And so to the point where like I would see a dude get hurt or like a guy would take a big hit or something would happen. And then all of a sudden, like he would tear his ACL and I'd be like, what side? And they'd be like, left side of it. He took that hit to the right of his head. And I like, it literally became one of those things. And like, I told people this for years. I'm like, dude, there's a correlation between big hits to the head and ACL tears. And I don't know why. And it happened to me 
right? Uh, example, I was playing left guard and we were going to literally run what we call a posted chop where I throw my head up, uh, throw my head real far in front and then throw my back legs and roll up the dude. And I'm supposed to basically post him. So it's, it's a fucking dirty move, but I throw my head in front, I throw my back legs and I roll up his legs. And as he's getting rolling up, the tackle hits him and it basically fucking take the guy out of the game. So I played for kind of a, a real fucking asshole coach who was like, you got to post and chop this guy. He's fucking us up. And I'm like, oh, great. So I throw my head in front, not realizing that he had his inside knee uh, back. So as I throw my head in front, his inside knee came forward and hit me square in the forehead and uh, knocked me unconscious. Like I got up, went back to the huddle, didn't remember it for three plays, but still remembered what my plays were and went out there and played. And then like three weeks after that, I was running in the open field, slipped and tore my right ACL. And I always felt that like, that impact to the head had correlation to that ACL tear. And I noticed it throughout my entire college and NFL career. A dude would take a big shot to the head and tear an ACL. So like I was always fascinated with injury mechanisms. The other one too, was that all of the guys that I saw that got back injuries was always as they were setting like square, let's say they were rotated and then they would get loaded from the side. So it was like um, back transverse and then load. And so it was this really interesting thing where like guy was like blocking a dude hit and then he would get hit to the side or hit this way. And it wasn't like necessary. He wasn't, it wasn't a hit he was expecting. So he was engaged and then he got shot and shot to the side. So I started putting a ton of movement uh, and a ton of, of focus into the trunk stability stuff that I'd learned from boxing, which looked like a lot of like rotation, especially staying active within the trunk. So uh, all the med ball stuff that I've developed um, that we use extensively almost daily in our programs that looks like, you know, lateral throws, you know, chops, sides, um, you know, being able to do reactive balls, lighter medicine balls that don't stop heavier or uh, more bouncy ones that come back. I mean, I, so I have like dead stop reactive throws. I mean, there's this whole circle of like, or just whole cycle of med ball work that I did, what I called trunk stability, trunk work. Um, you know, that's very similar to Charlie Francis's uh, GPP med ball work. Except he was using it for conditioning. I was using it as injury prevention. So that ability to be able to maintain a good neutral spine and more importantly, stay good and, and like uh, pulling the top ab down, keeping that good hollowed out strong position. The longer I can maintain that position, especially as I'm moving through space and moving my limbs and transverse, like that protected me from injury. So uh, I always thought there, especially when I'm kind of round about bringing it back, right? So when the young guys come in and I were to work with an athlete, the first place I'm going to start is I want to understand their ability to maintain trunk stability, especially as they move their limbs independently. So we use just the basic dead bug where I have them lay hands and feet flat on their back, arms and legs straight. I don't like the de the uh, dead bug with the knees bent because I'm interested in hamstring flexibility. So they got to basically lay flat on their back, hands in front like they're you know sleepwalking legs straight up because I want to check hamstring flexibility and dorsiflexion. Then what I ask them to do is maintain that good hollowed out position, flattening their low back, keeping their top ab down. And I want to maintain that position. And then I'm going to start moving the limbs like right arm leg down, left arm leg down. And I want to start moving the limbs independently of each other to see if I can challenge posture and position in their trunk. And if they can move their arms independently while maintaining perfect posture and position in the trunk, they have enough trunk stability to be able to advance into more like difficult training. So I use that basic ISO stability test with all of our athletes uh, for that. 
And then from there, I can check hamstring flexibility, dorsiflexion, shoulder mobility, a bunch of key factors. And then from there, we'll have them, you know, do a basic barbell back squat where I can see what it looks like in just a basic hinge X axis. So, and then from there, we can move, see how they move through space. Uh, vertical pulls, another big one. Um, I'm always interested in seeing if people can pull their chin over their bar. Uh, so really just like dead bug position, barbell back squat, vertical pull, and maybe just some basic push-up type stuff. Uh, the other big one is I have them pop their shoes off because I'm really interested in feet. Um, I, I have always been a long believer that, uh, you know, 99.9% .9 of this world, our contact with this earth is through our feet and that weak feet are really the canary in the coal mine for everything. You know, you hear these guys talk about knee injuries and hip this and everything and back. I believe that weak feet are 99% of all of it, that if you have strong feet that are able to be mobile and be able to be nice and strong, they can get their big toe in the ground. They can do a lot of things. Uh, most kids, I think, wear their shoes way too much. I think they got weak feet. I don't think they understand how to stretch and train their feet. And uh, that's pretty much the basic. So if you're gonna I can... have to unpack that though, because I, I, my mind, like, how are we gonna max out our toes? What are you, what are you thinking when we talking high speed ballistic? Unpack that. Because uh, you start uh, talking so... about feet, it's gonna get weird if you don't start explaining things a little bit here. Little well, well, well. So, so like when people. Um... I'm not necessarily talking about like, so I, I equate when I say weak feet, I really talk about rigid feet. Like, uh, like obviously you need to have a rigid foot to be able to generate force. But I think that there's like an interesting thing in like feet flexibility. I've run into people whose feet are so locked down, whether it because they haven't stretched it, they wear shoes too much or maybe injury that their feet are basically not very flight. Like they can't move their toes. They basically have zero like ability to be able to move their feet. And I think what happens is, and I've had guys even sit down, I'm doing it here, just kind of just basically stretching and getting the bones in the foot to move. And uh, their feet are just basically calcified. And I think that what happens is, is when we take their shoe, their shoes off, uh, you can see their ability to like kind of put their foot in the ground and get their big toe into position. And I really think that just like collapsed arches and not that flat feet are bad, but if you have high arches and your feet collapse, that can be a problem. But also, you know, just the idea that like, okay, if my feet are in position here, uh, ideally I want my knees to track over my insteps. I need my big toes in the ground. I've watched a lot of guys drive their toes out this way, roll out, push their knees and just get them into a good position where they feel strong and stable. Their feet are flexible enough to that. They can do a lot of different things, but not so rigid that they can't move through space. So that we just pop their shoes off and it's something that is kind of a work in progress. Uh, people are going to be good. People are going to suck, but it doesn't mean that we can't create better flexibility and be able to have a better environment through the ground. Now, fast forwarding to working with someone either in the height of their career or getting ready to transition from college to professional, um, really call it they have one more step to go. They're good or maybe even great, but they want to be a leader in the top 1%. What are some of the things? And we'll assume that they've got, you know, a minimum to maybe moderate um, exposure from their training. So they've got some sort of thing because nobody's perfect by the time you get to that level. There's some wear and tear. Um, but all things considered, movement-wise, look pretty strong no major mobility stuff. What are some of the other things outside of just the weight room that you think of in their performance paradigm that, you know, comes to mind? Um, when you, if guys are pretty well steeped in, in lifting weights, um, I think at that point, we just got to kind of look to see what things are outside of their paradigm. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about doing some of the strongman stuff. Uh, we always had, uh, we call our field strong Fridays days 
which always looked very grip intensive, a lot of isometric contractions. Um, I think that a lot of, especially high level athletes, especially guys that have observed, especially young guys trying to go in the NFL and make that next step. I think where they really struggle is in being able to have some of those isometric contractions. And you can think about an offensive lineman, obviously the violent nature of the punch, but then at some point the ability to lock a dude down and be able to pull him closer, being able to move and be really strong within yourself. So I think that there's some really fascinating things in terms of developing grip strength, isometric contractions, a little pulling, and then just making sure that they have a base level of conditioning high enough where they can actually get a ton of work. So a lot of the young guys we've worked with are just really out of shape. Like that's like the big difference between older guys and young guys in the NFL. The older guys just know how to work and are just in better shape. Like they've been doing it longer, whether it be what, but like I always, the young guys got real gassed. And I don't know if that was a lack of control breathing or they just went in good, good enough shape, but like that was something that he developed over time. So I'd start looking at a lot of grip stuff. Uh, I think the grip is really, really important for a lot of reasons. Um, but just being able to like, you know, everybody talks about the grip this way. I'm real big on like extensors, especially doing some what we call Kadaya killers, really training the grip both this way and this way. Um, then the other big one is going to be neck. Uh, a lot of guys are really deficient and all they think they want to do is neck. So we have a four-way neck system that we do with a lot of our fighters and the football guys and just making sure that they got nice thick neck and also a good set of traps, which is always going to be my number one indicator of um, what I call like the shock absorber of the neck. So if a dude has flat traps, I know he's not going to be able to handle a ton of hits. And the problem is, is when people think about these traps, they think about standing up and shrugging and it's really more like a Kelso shrug that develops those traps. So just understanding that they're well-balanced. Um, I do think a lot of rotation stuff is important and however we can get it, whether it be within the med balls or the different positions. But I really think that what separates the best athletes in the world comes down to the ability to separate the upper body from the lower body and be able to do that as you're moving through space. Um, I saw that within key receivers. You watch the best guy in the world sprint down the line, rotate, catch a ball and pull it. Same with offensive linemen, setting back shoulders nice or hips nice and square. And all of a sudden they're able to rotate their upper, their upper body and be able to fend dudes off while they move through space. So that's really, uh, for me, when I look at like what separates the like fairly good player from taking that next step, it's really going to come down to that ability to separate the upper body from the lower body, isometric contractions, conditioning, and then just the ability to fucking grind and not give up and just have that like little bit of like, I don't know, that game dog, whatever you want to call it, but just the ability to just keep going. Yeah. I was going to ask you to get into that because I've heard you talk about with some of the people, you know, that we've talked about with training where there is a commitment to excellence that maybe if you've been the most athletic or the most talented to really truly get to that top one percent you kind of got to black out and training it and i say that not in a reckless way but when when ladies or fellows will go to the point they will injure themselves and you as yeah. the coach have to put that governor back on for them we train it and I, I don't know how much of that do you think was attributed to your experience as an athlete kind of naturally versus you were also in west side i mean if you went into louis to louis place and said you know the wind's a little bright today you know i'm, I'm <laughs> that like i just don't know how that would go but you see uh, that well every, well every like level, every level has that though that yeah. if you're going to commit to be elite you cannot you have to rely on your training coach to kind of guide you there and that is that delicate you know sensei student balance um but to take guys there if you can tell some of those stories because i know just the one yeah it's yeah, great. the uh, the like I'll, like like there's certain things that are, there's certain environments that you'll be put into that you have no control over, and you either just wilt or you don't. Uh, 
Um, you know, I played in the uh, hottest game in NFL history. Um, we played in Dallas September 1 at noon at Old Dallas Stadium that had the roof cut out. And uh, it was 163 degrees on the field. And you could look it up. It's called the pickle juice game. It's not some fucking hidden deal. Um, but it was the hottest game in NFL history. Uh, so we went out there at noon and they told us the turf was like 163 degrees. Don't lay down. If you get hurt, just get off because your core temperature will go up and you'll die. And uh, they actually came in and like, they were like, hey, uh, like somebody's like, are they going to cancel the game? And they were like, fuck no, this is the NFL. We're going to go play this thing. This is what we do, right? So we go out there and um, it's 163 degrees, dude. It is so hot that like on the water breaks, I'm squirting water in my shoes because my feet were burning. And we went out and uh, like we played. Like nobody passed out. Everybody did it. Dallas was having guys falling in and out. They stopped giving us Gatorade and water and they went and bought like jars of elastic pickles and were literally pouring pickle juice in because we couldn't get salt in fast enough. And um, it was uh, it was one of those things where like you're it was so hot. It was so physical. I mean, obviously Dallas big rival, but your brain just kind of like turned off and you just did the job. And like, there was a certain mental of toughness of like, we had done this work. This is what you trained for. Nobody's leaving. Like, you know, the, the age old Jim Morrison, like lock the doors, nobody's getting out alive type of deal. And like, that was what we trained for. And uh, that's like, you know, like a heat and exhaustion and violence and all that, like makes cowards of a lot of people, but like, that's not what we're training for. And that's not where we're at. And so putting yourself in those situations year out and year end, um, you know, that's kind of where you end up kind of crafting this or more importantly, you get chances to test it. I mean, dude, I played in green Bay in January where the ground was so cold that as I got down into my stance, uh, I literally put my hand like a half an inch off the ground because I couldn't put my hand on the ground because I wore like thin receiver gloves. And if I put my hand on the ground, the ground was so cold, it would have frozen my hand. And then when I went to punch the dude, I couldn't punch him because my hands were frozen. So like, I'm basically like hovering above the ground, knowing that like, I can't get any weight forward because I don't have my hand on the ground, but if I put my hand on the ground, my hand's going to get wet. It's going to freeze and I'm going to get fucked. And I'm still out there in t-shirts, uh, uh, you know, no sleeves. So like I played like in that range of games or training camps or all that other stuff. And you just, I think what you do is you put yourself in the crucible so often, whether it be training or, you know, in that environment. Um, and that starts at a young age. And that crucible ends up preparing you for, you know, these huge milestones or these moments where like something is presented, like, you know, playing the game, the hottest, hottest game in NFL history. Like, yeah, this is what I've been training my entire life for. Of course, we're going to go out and do this. You know, nobody's going to quit. Everybody's going to go out there and crush it. And then you go out and do that. And not because you've ever tested for it, but you've done the body of work that allows you to be successful. So for a lot of the young guys, I always say, man, like do enough of the work train hard enough so that when greatness knocks on the door, all you can do is just open it and fucking let greatness happen. You almost got to get out of your own way. Um, you know, and for me, um, I've never been scared of anything like, you know, walking into West side training with those guys. Like I walked in, I mean, fuck dude, like the music's blaring, like, um, you know, dudes are in the bathroom, whether or not they're shooting up. I mean, I know they were in there like getting ready, doing a bunch of blow, you know, and like, I could hear him in the bathroom. Like I knew they were doing coke and, uh, you know, 8am on a Monday morning and these guys are in there blowing lines to try to squat big weights. Um, you know, and I knew that like, you know, we came out, like if there was going to be a fight, fuck, I'm game to fight too. So, um, I like, I've never been nervous to walk into any situation, whether it be athletics or this, I've never been nervous to, I mean, obviously I've been nervous stepping on stage to give, you know, talks, but it wasn't necessarily because I was nervous, but like, you know, you have a pit in your stomach because you want to do well. So um, I think it comes down to preparation. Have I done the work? Uh, should I legitimately be here? 
Like, am I a fraud? I think uh, there's also like this weird thing of imposter syndrome. I'm sure, I don't know, maybe you've gone through this and I go through it on occasion where uh, you're like, shit, man, should I really be here? Have I done the work? Am I as good as I say I'm going to be? And you almost realize like, well, fuck, these people aren't fools. They obviously have me here for a reason. But um, a big part of playing the NFL, like you just don't luckily like win a contest and then it'll put you out there. You know, and you don't get win a contest and you're not lucky to be out there for 10 years and start, you know, a couple hundred games and, you know, be able to play at a high level with some of the best people in the world and see guys in the Hall of Fame that you owned uh, unless you did the work that led up to that. And I think that that, you know, hard work, whether it be in the NFL, was the same hard work I did in college to graduate early and do my master's work. Uh, it's the same hard work that we power into power athlete. Um, obviously, we don't get to compete in the same way. Um, you know, the one thing which has been universal in my company and also on the podcast is um just stupid stupid consistency and just blind fucking effort like dude you guys have had a podcast we've done at least two a week for 10 plus years yeah and what's even crazier this is wild so uh i launched crossfit football march 31st 2009 i have programmed at least one workout or done some form of online programming every single day without interruption since 2000, March 31st, 2009. And now we have a dozen programs that we do. So we've literally power athlete cross the football. John Walmart has personally written some form of programming and posted it on the internet without missing a day since March 31st, 2009. So I just have like stupid, stupid consistency and just blind, like, what are you going to do today? Same thing we do every day take over the world, you know, which is from pinky in the brain. So I think where other people get bored, we just like, this is what we do. This is what we are. We do these podcasts. We have amazing guests. And, um, you know, it's not like it's going to get like, you know, uh, 5 million downloads like Joe Rogan in the first 10 minutes. But I think in terms of like having some of the better guests we got, you know, he never had Fred, Fred Hatfield on. He interviewed Louis Simmons, but he didn't get Louis's last interview. Uh, you know, we were fortunate to go interview Louis. So years ago, Louis called me on the phone. And said, hey, uh, we're going to start a certification. So this is after I think he and Matt winning. Matt was supposed to write it. I think he and Matt had a bad relationship. They fell out. Louis still wanted to do the certification. So he called me and said, hey, will you sit on the board for my certification? And I said, of course. You know, And I said to him, Lou, I don't know if you remember, but in 1996, 97, I was trying to bench 500. And I told him the story. And he was like, I don't know if I remember. Like maybe like he couldn't like he, he didn't snap and say, hey, I remember immediately. But I mean, think about how many people that we had talked to, right? And uh, I flew out there and that's when I went out. I was out there for like, you know, three weeks training with those guys uh, because I figured if he's going to allow me, to, if he wants me to sit on his board, I knew Westside from what he explained to me and I knew the history of Westside. But like to know Westside, you have to go to Westside and, and push yourself into the training and show up and go to Bob Evans and show up at the crew and this and this. And I did that because I, I, I always view everything like I want to, I want to see everything from the front seat. I don't want to be a passive bystander. So we went out there, trained with Louie. And, um, you know, like that, like that type of like um, mantra in so many ways or just that like, you know, front to the first. And then, you know, as I was out there, uh, Louie and I became friends. Um, he reached out to me on like a number of occasions and asked me for help on certain things. And I was always, uh, it was actually in the West Side, uh, West Side versus the world. So he called me and said, hey, we're filming this documentary. Would you speak well about Westside? I said, of course, no. If you need me to speak on these, I'm happy to do the interview. You've been so impactful in strength. Like, how can I help? And he said to me, hey, I owe you one. So uh, I reached out to him and said, Louie, I'd, I'd love, um, you know, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not big on cash in favors, but like, 
I'd like to get you on the podcast. And he's like, oh, I'm super sick. I don't do podcasts anymore. So then he's like, but for you, let me think about it. And then his guy, Tom, called me back and said, hey, uh, Louis's not well. Um, it's probably not best. But he said if he was ever going to do a podcast again, he'd do it for you. And so I said, great, when can I be out there? So we flew out there for the Arnold, showed up a day early, didn't know if he was going to do it because he was feeling sick. And we got a call. He'll be here at 8. We showed up at 8 and we filmed it. And then he ended up passing on pretty not there long after, but uh, no, man, it's uh, it's been really amazing. Like, I mean, our relationship and our friendship that grew out of the podcast where all of a sudden, you know, there were questions I needed answers to. And uh, I have um, long believed that if I'm the smartest one in the room, we got a huge fucking problem and I got to reach out. I mean, I need to have lifelines of people that are smarter, better, more accomplished than me. And uh, if like, that's what we need, like I'll reach out to it. So I don't really have any ego on shit. Like, I think that's also where we're a little down, where like I differ from a lot of these things. Like, I know what I physically did, but like, I make no ego about stuff. Like, if there's somebody who knows something better than me, I have no problem humbling myself and asking for help. Uh, if I need to run faster or if I need this or this, like, and I have a Rolodex, I'll call people and ask them on the phone. And it's because I so freely give them my own time and everything that I feel that like most people do. And if they don't, they're probably not the right person for me to call anyway. So, um, and and the other big reason too, which is uh, I think why I've I've been successful in that way, is I've always viewed about uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. So it, through this entire podcast, uh, I've always, I've talked about you know Louis, you know Zangus, you know Charlie Francis, Morrow. I mean all the people I've worked with in this and like the the in, you know the pieces of this information that I've been given, um, and I claim to have created nothing. Like and I've like. You know, I've been able to look at the information, use it and find creative ways to push it out. But at the end of the day, like I stand on the shoulders of giants, which I think a lot of people in the SNC community will want to be like, I invented this. This is my method. This is what I've done. And they're so quick to try to like gather their little fiefdom in their little corner that it just becomes disingenuous and it looks like bullshit. You know, I mean, I hear people say things all the time, like, like they, like they invented this. And I'm like, seriously, you don't think anybody squatted with their knees over their toes. You don't realize that as everybody sprints, their knees go over their toes. Like, I mean, all, like the amount of people that I hear or I see on social that rip off Franz Bosch and Charlie Francis about sprinting make me want to throw up every single day. So, I mean, one of the things that we used to preach all the time, and I still, you know, try to tell to the to younger, you know, coaches coming up is that what we're looking for, you know, we can teach you science, we can teach you technique and all that, but you either have it or you don't, it's, it's being hungry and humble. And typically people don't have both. You can have really hungry people that want to put up on their social media. They want to make it about them. You have super humble people um, and they're happy with mediocrity, but to find those individuals that possess that, you know, unique blend, the work ethic, because it takes a long time. And as you mentioned, as you think you start to understand something, you bring somebody on the show and you're like, I know nothing. I've had good success thus far, but you know, really what's next or what could I do? And was it good or was it optimal? And then still having yeah. that vibe to want to be the best. And then also move that field forward. Whether you like it or not, you have the torch. What are you going to do with it? And that was said straight point blank to my face. I'm like, well, I don't know if I want, like, I don't want it. Well, you have it. And you're making history every day and you're either going to, you know, make it better than you found it or it's, you know, going to be worse. Typically never the same. With that being said, when, when you think about the future of power athlete and going forward, what's next? I mean, you've done a bunch. There's been some really good things, things that you're continuing to ramp up, but kind of as you look forward, you know, kind of on those shoulders, what do you see coming down the pipe? Um, man, I really like providing online programming to people. Um, in uh, because I think 
like personally, I hate following my own stuff. Like I like to follow other people's programming. Like I like I like um, to see what other people are doing. Um, I feel like as a as a cook, if you always eat your 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 cooking, you're not going to grow. Um, so I'm always real fascinated, like whether people are doing, um, you know, there's obviously some more stuff I would like to do in the BJJ community. Cause I think it's so interesting. Uh, I would personally in a, uh, like if I could like fucking somehow spark the magic to make it happen. Um, I really loved the in-person seminars that we taught through cross the football. If I could go and like reboot that kind of like strength conditioning seminar for like the masses, uh, whether it be like strength coaches that are, you know, actively coaching athletes in a college environment, or maybe people that own a gym, kind of like we did within cross the football. Uh, I would love to reboot that the amount of information and influence that I was able to make on people in two short days was nothing short than legendary. Like to this day, years later, I mean, we haven't, you know, really taught a ton of volume of seminars since 2017. I still have people to this day that were at some of the very first seminars we did that are like, dude, everything that you taught us there uh, I still actively use today. It was the single most important thing in my life. Like, and if somebody asked me a question, I reference this stuff. So uh, what I really liked was the ability to be able to give people a foundation to start with. Like, this is your first taste. This is what strength conditioning looks like. This is how you arrange and you train athletes. These are the components of athleticism and more importantly, developing athletes. And this is how you work with them. And this is, you know, how you begin to take them on their journey. So I really, in a perfect world, if I could reboot some of those experiences, I would, um, uh, I like the, uh, the, the other thing too, I mean, so I've, I've had a, um, like an outline for a book on my, on my desktop for like a couple of years, I was approached about writing a book. Uh, and I've always, like I said, I suffer from this imposter syndrome a little bit where I like, I've never been qualified enough to write it just because like, there's so many people that are so much smarter than me. And I remember somebody's like, yeah, like, you know, there might be smarter people, but like, I don't know anybody who's worked with more people than you have. The fact that like, you know, you've taught literally like 300 seminars in person, like you were working with between 45 and 50 people, 30 weekends a year uh, all over the world. Like, that's pretty amazing, the amount of volume. And then the fact that like, you know, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people online, like the amount of volume and training in this, like that you provided to people is so big. Like if, if you're not qualified, who is? And I like, that's something I've always wrestled with. Um, but you know, so I, I think like being able to like create like um, and I, and I, I don't know what the book looks like. Is it a manual or is it a story? Is it like, uh, you know, the history of the power athlete or is it like, uh, um, you know, is it like Fred Hatfield's power where you're, you're going through all these things or is it just like, OK, here's a here's like a ready made seminar, like just like follow this. Um, is it like, you know, uh, who was it wrote uh, the strongest shall survive type of book? Like, I, like, I don't know what it is. And I think it's probably a combination of both where it's like, you know, here's, here's where it started. This was the story and here's what we've learned. And then, you know, what also somebody made a great point is, um, you know, there can be many rewrites because as information presents itself, I, uh, I also have a big problem where like, if I said something 10 years ago, that's not right. I'm the first to come out and be like, I was wrong. Like, Dude, that was, I was working with the best information I had at that time. Information has changed. Research has changed. Like, I'll change. So I think, like, I was always feeling like if you put something in paper, like, you kind of own it. But then somebody was like, you can always do different versions. Authors come back all the time and say, hey, man, I, there's new information. I can be better. So um, I, I would love to, to be able to, like, really put, sit down and, like, get back into the to the written word because we've done so much spoken word. Uh, put something into into uh, actual print and like put a, a firm grasp on like writing something like a book for power athlete. 
And uh, I'd, I'd love to be able to do some more in-line, uh, in-person events. Um, I also really take to heart, uh, Dr. Romanoff made a really interesting point to me that day when we were talking about like, you know, sports scientists, he said to get your master's sports scientist degree in Russia, um, wasn't about academia who liked you or whatever. You had to take an athlete on their journey to the best. You had to take them to the world championship. They had to win a gold medal. You had to be the person that shepherded them to greatness. And unless you did that, you didn't become a master sports scientist. And he said there were a ton of dudes who were way more qualified than him, but just never had the athlete to do it. And that is something that has forever been in my mind. So when I got approached about working with uh, the Victor and the guys from the Six Blades, um, I, like, okay, like I've worked with a ton of like high school, college and professional football players like that to me, that's like, I just have to like getting some of the NFL. I know this is going to be, people are going to laugh. Isn't necessarily about what I know. It's selecting the right person. Like I could probably like, if you lined up like a hundred kids, I could probably through an assessment and just talking with them, figure out within a, a, a you know, stone's throw, who's going to have a chance and then just work with those dudes. And, uh, you know, getting those guys to the NFL is a little bit different. I mean, obviously, they got to go through the combine, which is like just a big fashion show. But then once the fashion show is done, getting them ready to play, like I like that is 100% within my wheelhouse. And I don't view that as like a huge accomplishment, right? I know it sounds kind of weird, but like that's not necessarily something like if, if you said, hey, I got this kid who's got a future junk, can you work with him? I'm like, yeah, send him over. I guarantee I'll get him ready and I'll teach him everything he needs to know. I'll even teach him a lot of shit he doesn't need to know, but I will get him ready. And then he just has to go out and not get injured. And when other guys fall, he'll just be the last man standing. So um, when I got approached by working with Victor and the guys from Six Blades, this is something outside of my wheelhouse working with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, so I was excited for the opportunity to work with athletes outside my sphere of influence and be able to take them on a journey to be able to make them take them you know, to world championship and compete against the best. So in that vein of Dr. Romanoff, taking an athlete outside of like what I consider my sphere of influence and then being able to take them on the journey. So I could attain some weird version of my own master sports scientist in the Russian fucking federation. So that's exciting for me. I want those guys to do, do really well. Uh, Victor's got a big fight with Gordon Ryan coming up and some other big fights we're getting ready for. So I want him to see him go out and fight against the best. And, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, I've always wanted, or I've, I've always believed that I'm a faith. I'm, I'm a fan of humanity when you can watch the best person in the world stand on the biggest stage and have their best performance and put their hands up. And uh, that's like when I love humanity at the best, when I can see like the best in the world compete on their best day against the best and show up victorious. So I'd like to help him on that journey. And um, yeah, like that's for me. Uh, I, I think if I could, if I could close in on like figuring out what this book looks like, I could, I'd love to do some more in-person events and I'd love to take these kids on a journey that I don't think they can take themselves. I, um, I think I could probably call 2023 pretty successful. Well, this is going to be one of those things we're going to love to follow up. And again, you and I can talk for hours. And I think that, you know, some of our listeners may be new to power athletes. So if in the yeah. event they wanted to talk to you or reach out to you, what is the best way for them to kind of get in contact and, you know, follow up? Uh, yeah, you can just go to powerathletehq.com. You can just put in power athlete into any search engine. Uh, but powerathletehq.com is the website. Um, if you're interested in programming or talking to us or getting into our methodology and our education tracks, it's all there. If you want to hit me, it's just at John Wellborn on all social media. I'm pretty active on Instagram. Uh, I recently returned to Twitter after Elon Musk came back. 
just because I, I had thought Twitter had just basically disseminated into like the lowest level life forms. But since Musk came back, I think I've gotten a ton of more interest in it and I've actually become much more uh, engaged on, on Twitter. So not real huge on Facebook, but like, yeah, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, if people have questions, um, you know, uh, like people book consults constantly. I just did one for the other day for a guy who, uh, you know, just had a million questions and figured it was easier just to book a consult. So I talked to him for about an hour and he was a great dude. So, um, I am, uh, forever interested in like performance. Like, I think, uh, it's really pretty interesting in that I think people like get really into like the fitness space. I, I'm not really into fitness. Like I understand the need for fitness, but like when I start talking about like strength and human performance and wanting to have that nuanced discussion, I like that shit. I, uh, I don't want to sit around and argue with like mechanisms on hypertrophy where like, I, I feel like, and this is what I feel like a lot of strength conditioning and fitness and a lot of these influencers on social media, I feel like they're arguing about minutia and more importantly, like they're arguing about things that like, I didn't know we needed to argue about. Like I heard the other day, these guys arguing that like soreness was a good indicator of like muscle growth. And I'm like, like the research is there, like muscle damage and soreness, like isn't a driver for hypertrophy. Like that's like, so like if your only measure for hypertrophy is like, oh, my muscles were sore. And these guys were arguing about this. And I was like, fuck, that was like, I, I can point you to research from 10 years ago that fucking like, that's, that, that's well-established. Like, you know, mechanical tension. I mean, there's some like, like it, it's just, it's fascinating to me that like people argue about like, yeah, you want to put on muscle, like you probably need a high protein diet. And that's like debatable. So it's, um, I'm forever amazed when I go on social media, seeing the arguments that people get into for things that I didn't even know we needed to argue about. Yeah. And I, and I wonder how many times they're trying to find the answer in advanced knowledge, or it's just clickbait. I think if you know, probably things that, you know, the banter goes back and forth and then someone comes out with a DVD set see the banter go back and forth. And then, you know, there's a book that comes out. And I just worry though, with the younger coaches that, you know, early on, it was hard to find information. Like you said, you had to go use the the card system and then you had to go do that. And so it was hard to get information. So it's good that we have access now, but on the flip side, you better be able to go look through. And I remember looking at some of the research where you see it and you're just like, you know, no, because every guy that I know that deadlifts the house has a big back. Don't tell me that the back isn't act- like, and again, maybe there's a, a vein of truth or a, a, a something. Or how deadlifting is not a back exercise. Like that was one where, uh, you know, like I was arguing with um, actually a, a friend of mine, a guy, Paul Carter, who was like, oh no, you always deadlift after legs. And I was like, I, uh, I always viewed the deadlift as a back exercise. So I pull heavy on my big back day. I don't pull heavy on my leg day because it's a back. He's like, no, he argued with me about it. I was like, I fucking, I like it. I never got good deadlifting after my squat day, but like, you know, like, okay. So now you're talking about maybe deadlift technique. I mean, personal, like people make these fucking, these, uh, all encompassing, like, uh, absolute claims, which just feel insane. Like I, I, I am, uh, I, I think what it is, is it's clickbait or it's just the fact that people are this, un, uh, uneducated on shit these days that like, they argue about strange minutia that like, I, I, I'm, I'm literally dude, like there isn't a day that I'm not like somebody doesn't forward me or tag me in something that I scratch my head. And I think like, wow, I didn't even know we needed to argue about this. Like I, uh, like my brain is working like way faster than like people that are over there, like trying to like, um, uh, like, uh, what, what was it? Um, uh, somebody was talking about like, Oh, like, um, you know, here's, uh, movements for big legs. And I've long said, like, if you want to have big legs train or big legs, uh, train your adductors. 
all the dudes I noticed in the NFL that were all really fucking strong had massive adductors. Like they just like that fucking thickness in their legs. And I've never seen anybody like if you look at Tom Platz's legs, the dude's adductors are like off the fucking chart. And I wonder if like, like that's why his legs were so look so big. So these people are like arguing about like leg size. And I was like, why don't you just train the fuck out of your adductors? Like, well, I also, look like your bigger legs. When, when you have 10 to the 65th power rep schemes, sets and reps schemes with intensity plus exercises, there's so many different ways and, and you're on a path and a journey to optimize for the individual to make a blanket statement. Again, I always have the benefit of the doubt. Maybe there's some realm of truth just by probability at some point in someone, there's some situation uh, that may be correct, but learn the basics. I would always point everybody towards that, you know, the sushi thing on um, Netflix, the I dream of Jiro with the, the number one sushi guy, his son was trying to be a sous, sous chef for 25 years. He didn't even get to touch the fish. It was learn to make yeah. it right and do it till you can't get it wrong. And I think if coaches really picked some of the basic things and got it so that, you know, I'm going to give you a hundred people that are train wrecks with a squat, have the coaching acumen, have the cues, know the regressions, know the progressions, get that that's a much better start to the first five, 10 years of your career than trying to yeah. a little bit of this. And then you have no identity and you also can't do the job. That's what it comes. Well, to. I mean, that was what we did when I went on the road to go coach every single weekend. I got 40 to 50 new athletes. I would walk in having never met them, put our bag down and be like, all right, let's go. 8 a.m. Saturday morning, we got 50 new athletes and I had to get them to actually handle weight in some lift. And so we put an entire assessment system together. I could figure out, put, block them into differentness. And uh, we just worked with so many athletes in real time that like I could tell you and I'd like this is like not anything other than a fact that like if I looked at enough data points, the way my mind works is I just create patterns. So like if this, then that, like if the guy can do this and this and this, he should be able to do this. And within 90%, it's pretty accurate. Like if the guy can do a dead bug, he can do here. He can squat with his toes forward. He can sprint. If, if you do all this badly by the time we get to sprinting, and the interesting thing for me is um, sprinting is probably the greatest, uh, like the greatest tell for athleticism and power and speed and development. Like I can like watch you do everything. And like, until I watch somebody sprint and move through space, like, like there's, like that's that's really like me showing your whole cards let's give you an example i dated a girl in college aaron belger who was a four-time all-american 800 meter runner um i literally fell in love with that girl uh watching her step off of a curb put her foot in the ground and sprint across the street she was so graceful and moved so well literally she just like like bounded off of the curb put her foot and took off and i remember like my heart broke, like melted. And I was like, I love that girl. We ended up not getting married. She like lives, you know, completely different deal. But like that moment, like I was like, I like that, that was it. Like I was fucking sold. And I was like, I, I fucking love this girl for that very moment. And like that to me, especially, um, with like sprinting, like we would go do all these seminar, like we would teach all these different movements. I would teach them how to jump and land, sprint, run all the stuff on day one. The minute that we got day two to the movement stuff, I could tell you exactly who they were. And it was, it, but like we spent an entire day prepping, but like we saw thousands of athletes and like the only, and I, I don't know how to go back in time and give anybody else that volume of work. But like when people ask me like, Oh, how many athletes you've trained? I'm like, I did have trained thousands. I've seen more new athletes than like anybody. And the only other person I know more than that was probably Kelly Starrett, who taught more seminars than us, but did the exact same job. You know, we had such a rare ability to do that. And I don't know if you'd ever make that lightning again. But for me, it took me from like 
professional athlete to like my job and what we do today so fast because I had so much opportunity to be able to see things in real time. And I'm analytical and I look for patterns, you know, whether it be on the floor or everything, I'm constantly looking for patterns and looking for like some like vein of truth and everything that uh, it ended up appealing to my nature. It's, it's funny how those things, you have those breakthrough moments and then, you know, it's like the FedEx arrow and then you can't, you know, once you see it, you can't not see it. I walk yeah. into a room and haven't talked to some of our finance guys and some of the guys at Yale were brilliant with insurance and, and funds. You're looking at someone, it's a composite. Here's my asset class. You know, this person is short, but they are fast. How fast? Okay. Given this, that are, do they have a work? So you're, you're running these numbers and just seeing little Madden-esque numbers over each person. And each day you're trying to drive up certain attributes of that composite and yeah, being an elite athlete or practitioner, um, there's a genetic component to that and you have to shepherd that. But in that kind of cleanup area, setting those parameters, yeah, getting stronger, cleaning up your diet, changing even your mindset towards problems, you know, that you like challenges versus you view them as threats. A hundred percent that changes your output physiologically just from a psychological state. So um, it'll be exciting to see where this field goes. And again, too, I always enjoy these conversations. We're gonna have to have you back on uh, later well, on. Thank you. How the uh, the BJJ uh, project goes, but uh, thank you so much and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for having me.